thanks for checking out this message from Springmount Church. For more information about us and what we do, visit our website, springmount.church. Why not check out all the different groups that run throughout each week in Barrow and on Walney? And join us every Sunday from 11am at Salt House Pavilion in Barrow Infernos. If you would like us as a church to pray for you, please email prayer at springmount.church or sign up on our website for monthly news straight to your inbox. It's good to see those of you not not gone away. Um, and hopefully, is this is the sound okay? Okay, that's okay. I'll, I'll trust you. It's just I'm, I'm a bit uh, I'm going a bit deaf, I think. But uh, there's a lot of things I don't understand. How about you? Yeah, okay. Um, come here, Dad. My dad's here today, everybody. Okay. I wasn't going to do this. And Joel, come here. Come here, Joel. Okay. So this, this is my... You've heard me mention him occasionally. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. And this is Joel. There's one thing I don't understand, okay? And that is the phrase, the best is yet to come. Okay. Naomi, have a look at this picture. Okay, I have to say, I've got him up here. My dad is amazing, and actually, I want to honour him, because actually, if, you're, if you've got any complaint about me, it's probably mainly his fault, although actually, actually, it's probably even more my mum's fault who's also here, but um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't understand that phrase, the best is yet to come, because Joel will be looking at this thinking, really? <laughs> but actually, what, what does that mean? You know, I think my dad's the best. So actually, the best is yet to come, Joel. So you're going to be the best. And hopefully, I'm, hopefully one day you'll get me up here and uh, <laughs> maybe we'll see. But yeah, the best yet to come. You can sit down now. Thank you. Okay, it's all right. But I don't... Because <laughs> I, want, I want us to really consider... We've been looking at Ecclesiastes all summer. And as Mark Curtis last week said, I don't want you to leave depressed. And actually, he totally just did what, his own thing, which Mark Curtis does. We've got Dan Randall next week. He will also do his own thing. So I thought, do you know what? Let's try and summarise, really, the essence of Ecclesiastes as we come towards the end. So I'm only going to read a short bit. But I want us to consider that phrase, the best is yet to come. Because actually, that's what... Ecclesiastes should point us to. doesn't point himself to it, and there's reasons for that. But I don't understand lots of things. I don't understand drummers. No? Do you understand drummers? No? And you are one. You know, I cannot, for the life of me, understand how they can sit there with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, at least eight different things, two sticks, a foot, and, and play everything. I, I just don't... It, it blows my mind. You know, I, I can play the piano... But I, well, I think I can. <laughs> but I, I struggle to understand. I don't understand Marmite. I went to Cape Ray Bible College, and every morning and every mealtime at Cape Ray Bible College, on the table was a jar of Marmite. Didn't matter what meal it was. So everybody from overseas that comes to this country and sits having breakfast, dinner, and tea at Cape Ray thinks that we're bonkers because they have Marmite at every meal. I don't understand anybody who wants to own peacocks. Or, since I've moved into Chloe's bedroom over the last few weeks, cockerels. 
Believe me, I have not slept past ten past six, I think. Sorry, Chloe. I, I give it up. All those years you moaned, you were right. Okay. You weren't just moaning, you were right. I don't understand anyone who wants to own peacocks. They might think they want to own peacocks, but as soon as you've got peacocks, you do not want peacocks. <laughs> they are noisy, dirty, annoying, horrendous birds. I thought it was quite funny on Friday night when one of them started pecking at Russell's new plants, and Russell's the biggest advocate of peacocks. <laughs> but now it's potentially eating his plants, maybe he'll think again. <laughs> but Warren, if he was here, can do the impression of a peacock. They are irritating. Why would anyone want to own a peacock? But the Bible tells us over and over and over again, no matter what we understand or don't understand, the best is yet to come. And even that phrase is difficult to understand because if you're having a great time in life at the moment, if things are going brilliantly for you, and I said, the best is yet to come, you go, no, it isn't. I'm experiencing the best now. This is, I'm living my best life, yeah? With peacocks, I'm living my best life. Or, if you in... There we go. And that wasn't as annoying as it does get, okay? If anyone wants any, by the way. Rebecca wants some. There we go. Sold. You can have 15 of them, I think there is. Anyway. But if you're living your best life, then how can you understand the phrase, the best is yet to come? If you're in a position where things aren't great and things are really poor, then how can you also understand the best is yet to come? Because you might think, well, actually, no, life has just been really tough. It's been tough all the time. Yes, it might get better, but my experience is it goes up and down, it goes up and down. So the teacher here in Ecclesiastes has talked about work and wisdom and pleasure and wealth and power and all of those things. And at the end of chapter 8 and 9, he comes to this conclusion, and it's a very repetitive phrase that he's used throughout Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, he says this. In the NIV, it says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, there's the peacocks again, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. There's a phrase to listen to in the middle of the Bible, that is God's words to you and me, it says, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. So if you're here this morning going, well, I'll follow God when I understand everything about him, you're not going to. Because you're not even going to understand everything that goes on here. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. I think that pretty much sums up what, what the writer of Ecclesiastes discovered. That even the most wise person who says they've found it, they haven't. Because God is bigger I used to go into schools. I think I've used this illustration before, so I'll do it very quickly. When I was talking with school children, and they thought I couldn't understand God, I'd say, well, I've, we've got a dog at home called Dave. He knows that I'll feed him. Well, some Carol will, if I don't. He might get a walk, and he's quite happy to see us, but when I go out of that door, he has no clue what I'm doing. Why? Because I'm far more complex than Dave the dog. 
So actually, he's never going to understand me. He might know bits about me. He goes like this when he knows I'm going to be cross. He understands that. He goes like this when he thinks I'm going to be happy. And he rolls, no, I'm not going to roll over on my back. And scratch his tummy. But the message version puts it like this. I realized that if you keep your eyes open day and night without even blinking, you'll still never figure out the meaning of what God is doing on this earth. You will never figure out God. Because he is like I am to Dave. He's bigger, he's greater, he's wiser, he is the one. If he made this whole universe, then you're never going to understand him. Because we can't even understand the things that go on in Barrow. Can't, can we? So don't even try and get to the bottom. It says no matter how smart you are, you won't get to the bottom of it. You know, books and books are written by eminent scientists. I did say I wasn't going to mention my chemistry degree, but there is an opportunity. But anyway, books and books are written. Mum and dad, you paid for it, so I'm getting the value. <laughs> books and books are written by eminent scientists. Who remembers the TV program Tomorrow's World? This is a sign of age. Hands up. Okay. Hands up those who don't remember the TV program Tomorrow's World. That's because you're living it. <laughs> Tomorrow's World ran from 1965 for almost 40 years. It was a program that was looking ahead to the future and saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to be the advancements. In 1965, in that first year of the program, they predicted that within three years, everyone would ditch cotton and polyester pants for paper pants. Anyone wearing paper pants today? Carol, did you nod? No? Okay, I was a bit concerned. Is anybody wearing paper pants? So the science was wrong. The experts were wrong. These wise boffins who said this is going to happen were wrong. It's cool if your name's Russell, obviously. Because if you're wearing paper pants, you're definitely going to rustle. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, but I still admit that was better than the funniest joke at Edinburgh Fringe this year, but anyway. They predicted in that first year that there was definitely life on Mars. In 1965, there was definitely life on Mars. We're in 2023. Do we think there's definitely life on Mars? No. Still not discovered anything. Will they admit that they might be wrong? Probably not. They'll just keep looking and see if they can find it. Only recently have they worked out what makes a cat purr. How long have cats been around? And only recently, I'm not talking about the fact that you stroke it, it goes... I'm talking about what actually makes that noise. They've only recently discovered it. And actually, they still do not know why they do it, because apparently, they do it when they're happy, and they do it when they're in pain. So why did they do it? Nobody knows. <laughs> You'll still never figure out what God is doing on this earth. You're never going to understand everything. You know? why there is more genetic material in a tomato than there is in you. There is more genetic material in a tomato than there is in you. And yet you think you're superior to tomato. The science says otherwise. We'll never understand it. 
No one can comprehend what goes on other than God. Last fact that science got wrong. I've got an annual at home of science from about 1970-something. I must have got it for Christmas. And in it, it talks about computers and says no one will ever have a personal one. They'll be too big. Who's got a smartphone? Yeah? How many of us were told by teachers, you need maths, you won't have a calculator on you all the time? No one can comprehend what goes on other than God. That is the conclusion that the writer of Ecclesiastes comes to in his search. As he looks at things, not one person can understand what goes on other than God. It goes on in chapter 9 with these verses, 1 to 6. So I reflected on all of this and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. No matter who you are this morning, it's all got to be in God's hands. The problem is some of us choose to jump out of God's hands and try to live our lives outside of his grace, outside of his glory, outside of his goodness, outside of his love. Do you know, right now on this planet, it is impossible for every single one of you, everyone in this room, to live outside of God's love because you still will feel the effects and the impact of it. Even if you do not like God, even if you're not interested in God, you are still living in God's love. But if you choose to keep jumping out of it, then eventually he'll say, okay. Okay. The righteous and the wise, that's those that are holy, that are good, and those who are wise. What they do are in God's hand, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterwards they join the dead." Anyone who is among the living has hope. Do you know that? Don't know where you're coming from today, but that verse sums it up in the Bible. You're living with the possibility of God's love. Anyone who is living is living in hope. Even anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. We'll just stop there a minute. We don't understand everything about that sentence. But a dog in these times was a despised creature. They didn't have pets. They wouldn't have looked after them. Dogs were despicable to people. The lion was the king of the jungle. So even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Can you see the even stronger contrast? He's saying, those that are alive, you've got a chance. Those that live, we've got hope. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Jolly, yeah? But the best is yet to come. This part of Ecclesiastes, if you've been coming every week, you know that it's saying that all of us are going to end up in a box, apart from those that are here when Jesus comes. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're good or bad, there's one thing that is certain in life, and that is death. 
In the Old Testament, there is actually no mention of life after death. There's no mention of it. The Jews didn't necessarily believe necessarily there was something. They just had a hope that God would sort it out, whatever it was. The Egyptians, we know about the Egyptians, don't we? Anyone ever visited a Tutankhamun exhibition? Yeah? What do you find at a Tutankhamun exhibition? A dead body. Well, they don't usually bring him, but... There's all the stuff in there, loads of stuff. Vases, ornaments, statues, posh cases to put people in, goblets, jugs, yeah? All of those things. But when they found him and they opened him up, opened up the, opened him up, they opened up the pyramid, they just found those objects just still sitting there, just covered in dust. They hadn't, nothing had changed because they weren't alive. There's no hope in those objects. There's no hope in that stuff. There's no hope in that gold and, and all the things that Tutankhamun was believing he was going to have. The Egyptians were dishonest, really, because they believed that all that stuff was going to go with them into the afterlife and it was going to be helpful to them. We can't take anything with us. But we can take Jesus with us and we can be with Jesus. We've just sung about the throne room of heaven where we will one day, if you are in his grace, be able to stand. The Hebrews observed life, and they said, as far as we can see, to die is to cease to exist. And it's better to try and find God in this life and enjoy God in this life, because in the end, it all goes out. That was their thinking. That's where the Ecclesiastes writer was coming from. We need to live for God now. That's what he discovered in his search. All these other things were pointless, but we need to live for God now. We need to enjoy what God has given us. We need to live for his love now. We need to celebrate and rejoice. They had this view of life that it's all about, if it's all about this life, then God will reward good things and he'll punish bad things here and now. And that is where many people have a problem. Because if you don't believe that there is something beyond this, then you have a view that you don't know, first of all, whether God loves you or hates you. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. You don't know whether God loves you or hates you because it's all about now. You might try your best and things just go wrong. You might live your life saying, I'm going to be good to people, but actually everything falls apart. How many people have you heard ask the question, if God is God, then how can there be suffering? That's a question that comes from thinking that this is what it's all about. That today is what it's all about. If I said to you this question, if we die tomorrow, what are we going to do with today? What would you say? If we died tomorrow, what are you going to do with today? That is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. And he's saying if we don't believe there's anything beyond it, then actually we start looking at things and go, well, that person's been really good and they're being punished for it. Or that person's being really bad and they're getting away with it. Well, that's a view of today, tomorrow, nothing. That's an Old Testament viewpoint. Because actually, it's also a very today dog viewpoint. How did the Jews deal with this uncertainty of what comes next? Has anyone seen the film Fiddler on the Roof? If I were a rich man. That one. A matchmaker, match that one. Yeah? What other songs are in it? 
doesn't really matter, but anyway, I'm just having a moment. There's a phrase that they use in that musical, and I scared Joel last night because I played it in the car just to try and remember how you say it, and it's lechem, okay? Lechem. I don't know if they use it in the film. I haven't actually seen the film. I've only heard the songs. Terrible, I know. Lechem. Does anyone know what that means? So, to life, Jill. Well, we'll give Jill a round of applause, everybody. Yes, well done. Well done. Francis isn't here. You can take the gold star today. To life. That was their toast. And in Fiddler on the Roof, they're not wealthy people. They're coming from a place of real difficulty. And actually, if you look through history, the Hebrew nation has constantly come up against problems, has constantly battled things, has constantly had issues with other nations. But they have this toast, lechem, which means to life. In other words, it's the idea being that no matter what is going on in life or what tomorrow may bring, it affirmed life itself while it could. If you say, I'm going to drink to life, you're saying, I'm going to enjoy life no matter what. I'm going to enjoy my life because actually this is what I've got. That's what they said. That's how they believed it. They drank to life. They enjoyed life. They made the most of life. If nothingness and oblivion is coming our way, then let's drink to life now. That was the attitude to live for today. But is it enough to say, let's enjoy life because that's all that God has given and that's what he would want? That was the writer of Ecclesiastes saying that's what he wanted to do, but it didn't seem enough. Do you know, I believe you can't even enjoy the good things in life if there's no purpose. Would you agree? How many of us have been on a holiday for like two weeks and actually got to that end of the two weeks and gone, do you know what, it'd be quite nice to be home? Anyone? I have to say, I usually think I'd like to stay forever if I could afford to do it. But actually, I probably wouldn't. I think you'd get bored, wouldn't you? You'd get bored because there's no purpose. There's no purpose. Ecclesiastes, in that passage that we've read, and also in his meanderings throughout, says, what is the point? What is the point of being good? Because if we're good, we might still end up being treated badly. What is the point of even being religious? Those are the questions he's asking. How many of us sometimes come to that moment? What's the point? Yeah? Just me? No? Good, thank you. <laughs> what is the point? Um, I got quite emotional this week, particularly when I was sat with Ros reading it, but I posted something on Facebook. I didn't post it other than the fact that everything I read on it resonated with me. And it was all about... Um, being a leader, if you like. Funnily enough, I posted it, and the lady, the lady from Slimming World came and said, oh, that thing you posted, I feel like that. So even Slimming World leaders feel like pastors of churches. <laughs> but I got quite emotional reading it, I'm, and I'm going to try and read it today. We'll see if we get through it. And I want you to see if you can work, if you can resonate with it, if you can agree with some of these things. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it. I need to find it. Here we go. Now, I couldn't get through this reading it with Ross, but I'll try and get through it reading it with you. But I read this, and it just really echoed with me. There's some really good things in it, but there's also a lot of negative. And maybe you think about your role. It might be leading your household. It might be leading in work. It might be running a business. It might be 
doing the things for the family, but it's all about pastoring. It says pastoring is weird. Sorry for those who've read this, but I think it's really important. Pastoring is weird. I've poured my heart and soul into people who now act like I don't exist. I've done hours of counseling and deliverance with people who later deleted me. I've publicly honored people who chose to slander me and act like I was the villain. And then there's people I rarely have conversations with that honor and respect me to the highest degree. Some leaders have washed my feet, while others have thrown dirt on my name. I've got further already than I did with Ross. That's good. Pastoring is weird. I'm too much for some, yet too little for others. The same preaching that convicts one person angers another. The same sermon that was boring to one person was massively helpful to another. I'm praised sometimes for being so loving and graceful, yet slandered for being too loving and graceful in certain situations. Pastoring is weird. We're accused of just wanting money, yet we're also expected to live in humble poverty like a lowly shepherd. If you have nice things, then you're greedy and materialistic. If you don't have nice things, then you must be sinning and in rebellion because God isn't blessing you. People are always asking for our personal time, money and resources, yet when we set healthy boundaries to care for our own mental health and our families, we're considered selfish. Pastoring is weird. Everything you say and do can and will be used against you by anyone who's disgruntled, annoyed, petty, or even just bored. Every mistake is broadcasted as proof that you're unqualified, yet victories seem less talked about because they're expected. Your personal life, hobbies, interests, friendships, relationships, ministry alignments, and family are constantly under a microscope, being monitored by people searching for faults and failures. Shall I go on? Are we getting bored? Anyone echoing this with themselves in certain situations? Is anyone feeling that they get some of this or not? Or is it just me? <laughs> I'm going to carry on. Pastoring is weird. You give everything you have and somehow you still feel like you didn't give enough. You never meet certain people's expectations. You didn't do enough according to someone's opinion. There's always someone confident that they could do a better job, yet all they do is criticise from the sidelines. Pastoring is weird. You try your best to protect the sheep from wolves and somehow in the process you end up accused of being a wolf yourself. Sometimes other shepherds who don't even know you spread lies about you and your flock. Pastoring is weird. And yet there's so much fulfillment in precious moments, the feeling you get when someone gives their life to Christ, when you marry a couple who met at your church, bring restoration to a broken family or dedicate a child that mum and dad have prayed hard for makes everything else worth it. I'm going to skip ahead. Pastoring is weird. It's challenging, heartbreaking, can be discouraging, but it's also fulfilling, inspiring, and awesomely life-changing. I don't have to do this, I get to do this. It's not for the faint of heart. It can be brutal, but it can also be beautiful. Pastoring is weird, but I guess I'm weird too. And then it finishes by saying, pray for your pastors and leaders because statistics show that almost 20% of pastors battle depression and 85% of graduates who enter church ministry will leave within the first five years. Preaching is only part of the job. We are at war behind the scenes. Please war with us and for us. Now, I posted that. I didn't expect to read it all. I'll be quick now. But actually, what is the point? I often say, what's the point? When I'm frustrated, when I'm discouraged, what's the point? I'll just go and teach music again. That was fun. But then if I taught music again, I'd probably go, no. (laughs) But this is what the teacher couldn't see because the teacher couldn't see that the best was yet to come. Couldn't see it. 
He had no idea of Jesus. But we can see that Jesus altered everything because we're living now and we see Jesus. When Jesus came along, there were two types of Jew, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the big argument they had in their church theology was one believed in life after death, the others didn't. You know, some of our big issues in church might be if the heating's on or not. Or if somebody's wearing the right clothes. Or somebody does the right thing. I don't think they're really insignificant. Some of the things we pick fault in are so insignificant, they don't really matter. At least this was a big issue. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, tell the stories of the Sadducees coming to Jesus and saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies childless, his brother is obligated to marry his widow and get her with child. What about if this one marries this one and then has no child and marries another and so on and so on? The question is this, at the resurrection, whose wife is she? Because she was a wife to two of them. They were trying to test Jesus and poke fun at the idea of life after death. These were Jews. They were trying to say, that can't be true. That can't happen. Jesus answered, you're off base. You don't know your Bibles and you don't know how God works. (laughs) At the resurrection, we're beyond marriage. We're beyond marriage. As with the angels, all our ecstasies and intimacies will be then with God. The Sadducees were making fun. Old Testament, there's probably 12 glimpses of, of, of possibility of life after death, but Jesus blew the door open and said, I am the life, I am the resurrection, I am the way. Not only that, he had conversations at the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. He made it clear that death is not the end. He raised the dead back to life, Lazarus, Jairus' daughters and others. His teaching makes clear that death is not the end of conscious life. And the biggest breakthrough doesn't come with him nailed on a cross, it comes with an empty tomb. Secondly, life beyond death is a life that is unmixed. It says in that passage, there's light and darkness, there's illness and health. There'll come a point where they will be no longer mixed. There'll be light, there'll be health, there'll be joy, there'll be peace. But there will also be the other things together, darkness, illness, Sadness, chaos. Do you know the teacher saw a world with all its mixed upness? Jesus shows beyond that to a world where he's separated and says, Enter into my rest. The writer of Ecclesiastes couldn't see beyond, but today, as I finish, I say this the best is yet to come. We're not just living for today or tomorrow, we're living endless. And if we follow Jesus, he says, come with me. He says, you can be with me. I want to just go back to that passage that says, even the wisest don't know what's going on. If you're waiting to understand everything about God and Jesus, you're never going to. You only need to understand this. Jesus died and rose again. He did it so we could be forgiven. We can be free and we can live in love now. We can live in grace now. If you want that, you just have to stand up and take a step and say yes. You have to say yes to him. And you know what? No matter what happens in this life, today, the best is yet to come. Because he will separate the dark from the light. He will separate the ill from the the health. He will separate the chaos from the peace. And he will bring it all best is yet to come. Let's pray. If the band wants to come up, that'd be great.
Father God, help us to, to know your truth. Help us to know what you're saying to us. Help us to hear your voice. Father God, help us to not try and just figure it all out on our own. In this place this morning, maybe there are people who feel attacked or slandered or bitter or angry. Father, maybe there's people who've been hurt. Maybe there's people who've got issues. Father, I pray this morning that they'll bring it to you and they'll lay them at your feet and they'll hear you say to them, the best is yet to come. Father, for those who do not know Jesus this morning in this place, for those who do not know that Jesus died and rose again so that actually we could be free. Help them to hear your voice say, come to me because the best is yet to come. Father, when we look at this world around us and we despair of it, when we look at our lives and we think, how can it get worse? There's no way it could get better. Help us to hear your voice say, the best is yet to come. And Father God, help us to start living today knowing that tomorrow is covered, knowing that it's not all over, knowing that there is a hope no matter who we are, because Christ lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to worship. The prayer team are going to be at the back. If you want to go and receive prayer this morning, go for it. If you don't know Jesus and you want to give your life to him, go and ask them. They'll lead you. If you want to be just, if you want to hear God speak to you, go and be prayed for. But don't just sit and think we're nearly finished. Think the best is yet to come. Mm -hmm.